Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. Good evening. Thank you very much for tuning in to the latest episode of Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. Now, just as a quick notice to those who have tuned in, we've opened up the LinkedIn group and I hope you'll join me in uh, using the links below in order to continue the conversation after this episode. So this evening, I'm sat with Nick Cuff, Chief Commercial Officer for Pocket Living. For those not familiar with the London residential market, Pocket Living is the leading disruptor, resolute in bringing greater opportunity for first-time buyers to succeed in Greater London by buying their own home outright. Now, Nick has spent more than a decade in London residential. Before this, he was in politics, spending 12 years as an elected councillor in a London borough, including leading their planning committee. You can hear more of Nick's views on politics and London's residential by checking out his blog, propviews.co.uk. So Nick, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I, I always start off the same way, mate. Uh, so I, w- I won't sort of break the mould now. Let's get started on, the, on this journey. Tell me how sort of chapter one begins. Well, chapter one, maybe it's, maybe it's sort of the introduction, I suppose. Uh, I didn't have any idea about going to, re- uh, to real estate. I, I didn't have any aspirations to go into real estate when I started out, but I did have, I did have a few cues and I did have a few, I did have a few interests. And, and one of them was that my mother had had a very interesting career in local government. Uh, she had risen through the ranks and uh, had become a senior director at Essex County Council. So she'd sort of broken the gra- glass ceiling and um, she'd done some very interesting things. She had in the 1990s and 80s, she had been at the forefront of bringing a much greater emphasis of nutrition in school meals. And she was often on the television. And it was always quite interesting watching your mum on the television sort of battle it out and debate. And my father was um, was also in public service. He'd been in the British Army. And so I had always had a sense that I wanted to do something around politics and public affairs. and And I wanted to sort of work in something which kind of interface between the two so there was always around the dinner table that kind of discussion about what's going on in the world i've always had an interest in the world and and what was what, what was at play i suppose so how did that form then sort of those those next steps then did that, did that inform uh, degree or career decisions yeah i mean i had a really tough time at school for the first few years i lost my hearing in my right ear when i was very young and it wasn't picked up for a number of years, uh, just because I never test these things, and so I, I struggled a fair bit at school. And in the end, they, um, I went in for a routine medical examination. I can't remember all the reason why, but they, they worked, they worked out that I had absolutely no hearing in my right ear. And after that, uh, I, I got some very successful speech therapy with the NHS, which was extremely helpful. And, and a bit more time and attention in school. And that, that sort of gave me a, a bit of a platform. But I, I, I really struggled at, at school all the way through to, to GCSE, really. And I, I, it was only when I really got into sixth form college at A-level, I, I discovered I had this great interest in politics and history. And I was actually quite good at it as well. And it was a bit of a new thing for me to be quite good in the classroom, I suppose. And I had this uh, this, this economics teacher at school who was uh, also a, a local Labour councillor and he he had this uh, a really interesting mantra in life which was uh, everything had a marginal utility and uh, he always used to say well I never buy a new pair of shoes when I can I can always wear out my current pair of shoes as as much as possible and so we had these great debates and uh, and and I very quickly realised that I was I was probably slightly more to the right of him in, in our debates. And I was only 16 or 17 at the time. We used to have these fantastic debates. And he really, he really provoked me to think about what I should do uh, going forward. And I decided to do a history and politics degree in part because of family, part because of him really. And, uh, and I had this sort of sense that I wanted to understand more about how the world ticked, I suppose. And that sort of led me to, to university, still quite a long way away from the sort of realization that maybe real estate might be a career for me 
but I found it very, very enlivening. It was all very strange and random, but I, I got a, an internship interview with a individual after writing off to scores and scores of organizations and companies. I, at the time, you had this sort of mindset given to you by your careers advisors that the, the greatest thing you could achieve was a graduate scheme. And it became very apparent when I was coming out of university that graduate schemes were, were few and far between. And that actually the only real route was to sort of graft your way through with the various internships and as much work experience as you could possibly find. So I, I wrote away to all sorts of organizations and uh, I kind of remember having a conversation with someone who was a couple of years older than me from, from my university saying, well, why don't you think about uh, political communications and public affairs? And I hadn't actually realized that this organization industry existed it was actually very small at the time it was quite nascent lobbying essentially is is what it was or the old the old term for it anyway and so i wrote away to a number of these companies in the lobbying space and i got a, a response from a gentleman called ian anderson who invited me up in the summer for an interview and i remember uh, i still remember it sitting in a room within a very cultured scott and very well dressed Scott as well, and much much better dressed than I had ever been to date. Anyway, as a sort of slightly scruffy, fresh out of school graduate, and we had a conversation about career, what I wanted to do. I said I wanted to do something in politics potentially. He he said a lot of things. I really didn't follow much of what he said. I nodded a lot. I struggled to understand what he was saying, if I'm honest. But he he seemed to sort of like me and. Uh, and he offered me a, an internship in his startup, which at the time was about four or five people. And I remember, I remember going up into town on the first day, pretty much first time I'd ever been to London. I think I've been a couple of times at school, but I didn't really know it. And um, it all seemed very grown up and very, uh, very serious. But it was a really lovely organisation. And what I didn't realise at the time was, I mean, I'd say this looking back now, but in was in the process of building up a, a very substantial business and, and presence in the market, which is now, I think, probably one of the leading communications companies. And I was in the middle of watching a startup grow from a very, very early stage. And now I think it's, you know, scores of people doing all sorts of different things. And I still keep in touch with him. But I, I think I learned, I think I learned business from him very early on. And I learned narrative from him very early on, how to tell a story, how to interact with people, how to negotiate, how to manage. He was a really interesting role model for someone of my age to work directly with him. And and I loved it. But I but I also after a little while realized that that's not where I wanted my career to end up. But but it was really useful to be there and see it and see him operate and 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 go on from that and so what follows from there so i i randomly then jumped and i decided i wanted to to sort of follow my mother a little bit and i i got a job at this place called the local government information unit which is a think tank uh and historically i hadn't (laughs) being perhaps young and naive i hadn't really done too much research at the time, but it sounded really cool. It sounded about, you know, for me anyway, campaigning on local issues, local democracy. What it actually was, was it was a uh, an organization set up in the 80s to campaign against the poll tax and factorism. And I don't know whether they didn't read my CV or I didn't read their CV, but we got on really well. But I don't think they realized at the time that I was, um, I, I was much more of a conservative leaning person than, than they ever had in their organization before. So I joined this organization, which was, I would say, of the left. And and I absolutely loved it. We had some great debates. I mean, it was, I mean, we're not just talking uh, center left here. The, the, there was a, a sort of almost sort of hard left approach a mentality. And we, we used to have some great debates. I mean, it was quite a big organization. And within it was a lot of, a lot of aspirant labor politicians and, and a number of them who I worked alongside much older than me, went on to run London Labour Councils and, and councils beyond London. A number of them worked in the in the new Labour government at the time. And I learned a lot about 
local government and and democracy and 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 campaigning for local councils and and and, and the importance that they they play in life and and indeed in in, in real estate too. So we um, we talk about sort of chapters a lot in this about sort of accelerating and. Now, you've been really sort of frank then about sort of what what were you learning at any point did you allow this to to sort of shape the plan what you wanted to be doing next yes i think it i think it i mean lgiu was 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 shaping things for me and and it gave me a a nudge that i might want to have a career in politics and at the time that that was something i had thought about i had become more politically active and two things happened um the first was i'd moved to a new area in Wandsworth, which uh, I'd been in North London up to that point, and I actually was looking after someone's flat who was a former employee of Cicero, where I'd been originally. And I I got an email through from the local conservative branch. I hadn't hadn't done anything local local locally politically, or indeed any, anything really politically at that point. I'd been interested, uh, and and it was. In the year of the local elections, it was 2006, and they sent a note round saying that a candidate had dropped out in Wandsworth, and would I be interested in in applying for the seat? And of course, being at the LGIU, I was very aware of of by that point what local government was doing and and local politics as a career because everyone around me was engaged with it. So I felt I needed to jump on board because it would be good for the LGIU as much as anything else, and so. So I applied for it. I got a call from the agent uh, at the time who was quite a brisk individual. And he said, well, you know, you're a bit of a long shot. A, you're only 23, 24. And B, this is Wandsworth, which is uh, a flagship Tory council. Uh, and C, you have, you're one of 12 candidates that we're going to interview, but but we're interested. So he basically said, you know, nice to, to meet you, but you're not going to really stand a cat in hell's chance of getting this. So I went along to the interview and Ed Lister was there. He was the, the leader of the council at the time and quite intimidating, really, because I'd heard about Ed Lister. He was a bit of a he was a bit of a legend already, really. And, and there were a range of other people. And I had the interview seemed to go quite well. But I I went home and I said to my girlfriend at the time, look, you know, nice experience. It's great you know, to learn and do these things, isn't it? But don't worry, I'm not going to be a, a local councillor anytime soon. And then the next day I I had a call from this brisk agent saying, Well, well done. I'm a little bit surprised, but I'm pleased to tell you we've given you a safe conservative seat. And I I was with my girlfriend at the time and I mouthed that I got it to her. And as the conversation went on on the phone, I saw tears welling up in her eyes. <laughs> and and uh, as I as I put the phone down, the agent inquired, oh, is, that, is she all right? And I said, oh, she's just delighted, tears of joy. And as I switched the phone off, obviously, it wasn't tears of joy. It was uh, tears of despair at the fact that <laughs> she was concerned that I had given away most of my private life to to local politics, which, as it turned out, was, was, was actually pretty accurate because what they'd done at Wandsworth was they'd put me with two more elderly councillors who perhaps, shall we say, were were not as uh, as fit as they once were. And and the ward that I was to represent was was, was probably the, the most uh, hilly part of the borough. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a lot of staircases, not many lifts. And uh, it quickly came apparent that I was to be a pack horse. And whilst it was only a short run of election, I don't think I have burnt as many calories as I I, I, I did in that little period. What, jumping upstairs, I've, I could talk I could talk for endless 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 hours about stairwells in local councils uh, local council buildings, and and that's what it was. So um, it was very lucky, really. Um, but I I ended up becoming with a very short campaign a Wandsworth councillor, and and at the same time, whilst that was happening, I I got a job working in the House of Commons for the the shadow opposition david cameron at the time was leader and i got a job as a as a researcher for the dti brief the portfolio and and that included small business enterprise and some local governments so i went from being sort of outside the house inside the house and into this sort of really grand environment but i was in a position where i was basically doing politics day and night at that stage which was which was interesting and a lot of people were doing that but i also kind of started to think well is that what I want to be doing forever because I'm I'm not 
not old by any stretch of imagination at this stage, but I'm I'm literally doing politics morning, noon and night. Okay, Nick. So you you said earlier you, you were quite fancying then the, the this life as a politician and certainly as a, uh, as a career given sort of the LGUI. But at this point in your career, was that wavering at all? I think it was a little bit. I think it was a few things. I think it was the longevity of it, and it was also I started to notice working in the House of Commons. It, it was a lot of back and forth. And, and the council was similar, a lot of back and forth between Labour and Conservative. And it was all very, very draining in some ways. And I I began to question whether this is what I wanted to do uh, in the medium term as a career. And Mark Prisk, who was the MP that I, I worked with, shadow business minister, was also an ex-surveyor. And, and we had a couple of conversations about what that what that kind of career looked like and what i noticed particularly with the the planning caseload the mail the mail bag was always planning uh mps was that there seemed to be this disconnect between what house builders and developers were trying to achieve and what councils wanted and and it felt to me that there was a career there I suppose, at that stage. I didn't really know what it was, but there was a career. And whilst I, I mean, I always describe the House of Commons as being like at university, uh, except you have to get up in the morning. I mean, everything in there is discounted and cheap and you're with a bunch of young people. So there's there's a load of MPs. They all decamp on a Friday and, and you don't really see the Lords too much because they do their own thing and they're all batty. So you're in you're in an you're in a place where you've got your own campus almost. There's, there's there were bars, there were restaurants, and there were loads and loads of interesting young aspirant people, and it was immensely fun. And and there were people there who just stayed there, you know, because it was why would you go? It was just this world in itself. And if you loved politics, then then it was for you. But it, I realised I think at that stage I probably didn't love politics quite as much as some of the the really interesting people around me and I wanted to do something out outside the politics bubble so I then did return to the dreaded graduate schemes a bit older and I applied to every single real estate company I could find and I got I got an interview at DTZ and I got an interview at uh, CBRE and I got offered places on both of their graduate schemes but DTZ said to me we'll only have you if you leave the council and CBRE said, we would love you to stay on the council because we think it's interesting and enhancing. And so I I thought, well, I'll go CBRE. And uh, so I joined CBRE in their city office in the city development team as a as a graduate planner. And anyway, I went from being in this kind of really fun environment to one which was more corporate, but, but also completely different and also really, really uh, interesting and a great opportunity as well, I think. Why not join? Given sort of um, what you mentioned about your parents and the sort of the that sort of social impact, why why go join a big corporate like CBRE? Why not why not go join a, a London borough? I thought quite hard about that, and I think on balance, I felt trying to be a councillor in Wandsworth and a officer in a lo- another London borough would would just confuse the hell out of me. If I was honest. Um, some people did it, but I thought maybe maybe it'd be interesting to try CBRE and, and see how that went. And I was also, I suppose, a little bit conscious of what is it like to work in a big corporate? I'd been in startups and small organisations, and I sort of thought maybe it would be interesting to see whether I could be, I could thrive in a corporate environment, or actually, if it's not for me, then at least I know and I've done it and then I can move on. And so it was a bit of like, let's just test it and see, I suppose, Nick. And how did it, how did the test go? Oh, I hated it. <laughs> I, I hated it. I hated everything about it. I mean, uh, I could, uh, I mean, I look back now and by the way, I think it was a really good experience for me, but at the time I had to get into the city. So I lived in Wandsworth. I had to get into the city for eight o'clock and then I couldn't leave before six. And, and then I had to get over to Wandsworth for seven thirty. So I was doing these mega long days and it was, I was right back at the bottom. So I got all the way down and there were just so many people and so many layers. And at the time I was really, really ambitious and really impatient. And 
I just found all the layers uh, exasperating. Now, CBRE, I think, were really good with me. They they kind of got me a bit. I think they all looked at me and thought, yeah, he's either going to implode or he's going to be someone that we should back. And they they did back me and they, they actually seconded me out of CBRE at one point to one of their big projects, which was interesting up in north london it was the um the frick the francis crick center which mm-hmm. is the uh the the medical research facility that's been built now and is operating up in north london they needed someone to go in and steady the ship there and they sent me in to do that as a graduate which was re- which was really really cool um but i found i found the sort of the corporate environment pretty stifling if i'm honest and and also i realized i wasn't good at being an advisor i suppose which is what they were they were particularly the bit i was in i was a consultant and and you were there to sort of do the due diligence and the sort of heavy lifting which was really really important but i i I realized that probably mentality wise it wasn't it wasn't the right place for me but but what what was good looking back at it was the skills it taught me you know the the attention to detail the 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 relentless rigor that you applied at a business like cbre to ensure that your clients and there weren't that many of them at the time, by the way, because it had just been the financial crash had happened. And they had even thought about cancelling the graduate scheme. So I was lucky to get in, actually, in that regard. But the clients that, that we had, uh, it was all about protecting them as much as you possibly can with the best quality of advice. And and those things, whilst weren't, were not natural to me personally, were really important elements in building blocks, I think, for me more generally. So that at the time, I didn't enjoy it at all. But I look back now and I think, actually, if I hadn't done that, I just wouldn't have the same appreciation of that important element of the the real estate business. Okay, Nick, so I keep talking about chapters throughout this series. And I think I've got a really good understanding now about sort of where you've been accelerating, what you've been learning. But if it feels like that, maybe that sort of that chapter now is waning at at CBRE. And I certainly get the impression that sort of this young planner uh, feels like he's, he's, he might be looking for something else. Yeah, I think that's right. The The market, the residential market was in a really bad place back back then in 2008-9. And, and it was really, I mean, I describe it as you were picking over the entrails and you were, you were, I was constantly dealing with distressed assets and looking at what had gone wrong because of the market. So it didn't feel like it was going in a direction I wanted it to go in. And at the same time, Eddie Lister came up to me and he said, Nick, I'd like you to do me a favour. I was a backbench counsellor. I hadn't really got anywhere in Wandsworth, really. And and it was it seemed like a long way away from anywhere in terms of progression. And I hadn't spoken to Eddie for four years or three years since I got selected as a counsellor because he ran, his, he ran the council and he was a quite a, a distant senior figure. And he said, I, I would like you to write uh, the local manifesto for us uh, for the next election. And he also asked, I'd like you to consider taking the planning job. And I was aware of the planning job. And I actually said no initially, because I thought, well, if I do that, then what's been the point of of starting a career in CBRE and, and going through the, the challenges and, and sometimes the hell of it really uh, to get to a point where I'm going to be a qualified planner, potentially a qualified surveyor, and all those things. So I was a bit uh, apprehensive, but then I looked at where the world was and I thought, actually, that's the wrong move. This could be really interesting. And I looked at the horizon in Wandsworth, and on the horizon was the Nine Elms. The U.S. Embassy was talking about buying into Wandsworth. The Batty's Power Station looked like it might eventually start to to gather momentum and happen we had the ram brewery there was so much there and i just thought the cycle for wandsworth is here the cycle economically is not there but the cycle in wandsworth is here so i'm going to take a bit of a leap of faith here and do what i didn't want to do and that was to become a a full-time politician so i did the manifesto i worked ridiculous hours and i i got through it i got re-elected and and I got the job in the cabinet and my responsibility was to to lead the planning department. And I only had a couple of years experience at this stage. So I, I didn't really have much in the way of experience. And Ed turned around to me and said, good luck. You need to get the Batsy power station through and you need to make sure the Nine Elms functions. You need to deliver all of this and Northern Line extension, all this stuff. And um, yeah, we're counting on you. So here you go. Here are the keys. <laughs> and I and I thought, oh, this could be quite interesting. 
the first thing though, I had a little bit of a setback because and I should say this. I mean, I I got to the point and this I was 28 and I got to the point where I'd nearly burnt myself out because I'd been running a local election. I've been running essentially half half the party functions at local area as well. And I was doing this job at CBRE full time, starting at eight. And and I, I turned around after the election. I literally had no energy left. So I the first thing I did was I handed my notice in at CBRE and I said, sorry to Stuart Robinson, who who was my my boss at the time. I can't carry on with this. And the second thing I did was actually I said to Ed, look, I need I need three months off because I can't I can't carry on just in the same way. And a friend of mine who had studied with me at UCL and become a lecturer at UCL, um, uh, half Tanzanian, invited me out to Tanzania. And I, I took three months off. And, and I even though I was still a politician, you know, I had colleagues, they could cover that. And I just had a break. And, and it was so important to have that break because I knew I'd be coming back after the elections into a, a very, very intense period for Wandsworth in a job I'd never done before. I didn't really know how to do and and I knew I just couldn't just transition straight away. I needed a rest. And I also need to think about what I wanted to do more generally, because I just basically, after two years, nearly two years, whatever, just jacked in my job at CBRE. So so that, there, there it was. I mean, I sort of, I, I basically did another about turn. Did you allow yourself time then in that sort of three months break then to make a plan? Yes, I did make a plan. It was called surviving. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I, no. What I did, I mean, what I, I had, I, I thought very hard about w- what was going right and what was going wrong in my life, and I, I concluded that my career was really starting to get quite interesting for me personally, and probably more generally because it was a really unique moment to be someone who came from the real estate industry at my age to then also step across and run a an interesting, quite high profile public lead lead a job um was an was a unique opportunity but what i also realized was that i had spent so much time focusing on my career i hadn't really focused on anything else so i i started to sort of try and find things i could do to just get a bit more mindful and a bit more balance in life and i i actually got when i came back from tanzania i got into uh, martial arts and fitness and I found it, I started to get into it a little bit before, but I realized that I needed some sort of break from the intensity of work. And so I, I, I got into, I started learning another language and I got into fitness and the fitness was such an important thing for me because it just gave me a way of taking all the, 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 the energy I had and, and the stresses I had and just clearing my mind and, and, I can't really speak highly enough about how, how fitness has helped me kind of get to the next couple of stages of my career and just managing myself uh, in a way which wasn't just work, 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 but I had those breaks. And and martial arts, I mean, I just, kung fu, kickboxing, I, I, got, I got reasonably competent at it and I ended up doing competitions and all sorts. But it was such a great thing. So I joined this club and it was full of stuntmen. You know, everyone was in like films and stuff. And they, I just realized that there was this whole new thing that I could do and and, I, and it was just away from work and it, and it just sort of gave you a challenge mentally and physically. But also, which was really important, was it's an honest sport and you can't abuse your body and do it well. And and so if you're honest with your body, you give yourself enough sleep, you have a healthy-ish lifestyle. I'm not, I'm not, I'm no saint, by the way, but a, but a reasonable lifestyle, you can get get a lot out of it and you see those results. And and so it sort of gave me a bit of a kind of structure, which I probably didn't have. I was burning the candle too much every every which way. And and that was, I, I, I know it's a little bit of a segue, Nick, but I think it just has helped me a lot having that. Definitely sure it's, it'll help. And it's, I think it's a good, a good lesson for lots of people to, to hear if they're, if they're feeling like that at the moment. Um, so given you know, given then you mentioned about sort of the mindfulness and the, and the, the plan about sort of uh, surviving, where did that where did that take you? I got to a point where I realised that you, the trick with being a planning lead politician is you shouldn't get so engrossed in detail that you can't make decisions. That the job is about decision making. It's about providing an effective level of scrutiny. But it's about making the process work for both the residents and the future. And and I realized that I don't need to be an expert at everything that was coming at me, but I need to know that I had the right people around me, both as officers and as a committee, to support me. 
and and I understood. I mean, I was very lucky. I had Ravi Govindia, who who was who became the leader. Eddie Eddie became the deputy mayor of London. So he was there. I was in his cabinet for a year, and then Ravi became leader. Ravi had done the job, so he ga- he gave me a quite a lot of insight on how 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 it ran. And with the power station, what I what I essentially did, uh, the Battersea power station was was I didn't try to sort of tr- tread over old ground because it was already quite a mature planning application. But I tried to break it into some fairly digestible themes. And when we came to the committee on the night, it was a it was a three straight four hour planning committee, but it was an enjoyable experience and it was an under- intelligible experience. It wasn't a unaccountable decision. It was one that was very openly made. The only regrets I had were, were two, which were the first that for some reason, we had a load of uh, conservatory extensions put on the back end of the committee. So we had a, a bunch of poor residents who had to stay up till 1230 at night just to get their, their applications determined. And of course, we determined them all in 10 minutes. So why on earth we did that? I don't know. And the other the other thing I learned from doing these quite high profile planning committees is that having a bit of levity is, is no bad thing. And and I always, you know, sometimes you get some really aggressive kind of negative acts, a- atmospheres in these planning committees. And and, and the, th- the thing to them is, is you've got to be quite a strong chair, but you you shouldn't take it all so seriously that that it becomes this negative experience. So I always used to try and, you know, quip a little bit and just relax people uh, and make it feel like it was it was a it wasn't just a kind of standoffish and confrontational experience and we, in the case of the the power station when when the permission go, went went through we made the decision to approve it the 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 public gallery some people clapped and some people shouted and this individual in particular who was a dead against anything happening to the building uh, shouted uh, shouted out what about the bats what about the kestrels and i think there'd been some kestrels roost, ro- roosting in the 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 building itself and I probably went a little bit too far because I quit back. Well, Batman's gone back to Hollywood, so I wouldn't worry about him. And of course, the the original Batman film had just been filmed that summer in the power station. So what went from being a, a story about this great building finally being consented for a, a path to revitalization and regeneration became one about a story about Batman becoming homeless in the local <laughs> press, which I think at the time Ed was a little bit... Um, a little bit bemused by, but I think he was quite pleased that we got it through and handled it well. And and I certainly felt overall it had been an experience which taught me a lot. It clearly was, and and, and, and given sort of the that sort of relatively sort of fledgling career as as a planner, what what a huge amount of responsibility as well. But where did you, where did that where did you let that take you? Because that could have that could have taken you in lots of different avenues, presumably, couldn't it? So, going back to this point, I didn't want to be a full time politician, and. It was also, I think it was three things as I got further through it. It was intrusive. I didn't probably have the patience for it forever. And I I got quite frustrated about the fact that a lot of the things that were being delivered in Wandsworth, by this point the market had come back, were were not was simply not affordable to 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 local to local people, which was a real frustration. Nothing you could really do about it per se in that particular role. I'd done a degree at the time, as well as being chair on a real estate diploma, and and I was ready to go back to real estate. I think, and I I needed to find a job which I could do, which didn't conflict with the Wandsworth role. But I said to the the council, I can't do this for more than four years. I do need to go back to real estate, and that was when I I had an interview with Daryl Flay and Scott Hammond at Essential Living, and they were a startup and um, small company. I I was very keen to have a run back in the world and real estate, and I went there. So uh, you mentioned um, uh, Scott's name. To, the, to those people who aren't aren't familiar with either sort of uh, Scott Darrell or sort of Martin and, and Essential Living, uh, this was probably London's first build-to-rent developer, but even even before that phrase was sort of coined, wasn't it? So was that? pure luck that you sort of struck struck in uh, on them in terms of it and it being sort of on the the cusp of a, a new wave of a whole new sort of segment or, or have you got some sort of divining rods to new exciting startups i think it's just pure luck i mean i think i remember i remember once canvassing with malcolm rifkin the uh, former foreign secretary and and i told him about how my career had gone and he just said same for me it's just just luck it's always fluke and 
and it, and it was this fluke with this. I mean, you know, wherever you end up, I think there's always an element of luck involved. And and I don't think I had any idea that Essential was going to become this thing. And I don't think they did either at the time. And certainly when I joined, it was this five-person entity which had kind of come out of the ashes of the the recent recession. But it became something very different. And I, and I absolutely loved it. And that was when I realised I think I was in the right sort of part of the 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 world for me, I think that was when I realized that residential development is where I was going to actually be interested and successful. And I, and I, and it would stretch me to a point where I would never feel as if I was going to get exhausted or tired or impatient with it. They, they went from being a sort of one site, two site type developer to being funded by M3 capital and, and being given a substantive investment uh, envelope to, to build a portfolio of, I think something like 3000, Build to rent, and what I really liked was it was about it was it was an opportunity to take what I understood from local government, from from politics, and make a case for housing which could be more affordable and more meaningful, and doing something completely different, a complete paradigm shift from from the sort of build to sell approach which had taken place uh, as it as the mainstay of of development up to that point. So going out and explaining what this could mean. To, to local government was part of the attraction. And the other part of the attraction was it was it was a really meaty role. It was a development manager. I would be running the projects. I'd be overseeing so many different f- facets. And one of the things about real estate, which I think is really good and, and why I, I really identify and enjoy it, is it it's one of the last arts of the generalist. It's not an industry where you have to have a specific career route to succeed. In fact, I think it's quite wrong in some ways to to have just one peg you need you need to have a real range and and you touch on so many different disciplines and facets i think it's very important you have a foundation in something but but once you've got that foundation then then as long as you're able to sort of be lateral it really does promote people like that and and there are i think fewer and fewer industries and sectors where where you can actually do that and still and still feel like you have this broad scope uh, and you do that very much in residential development, which is why I think at that point when I was working with Daryl Scott and Martin and the team there and watching this business grow and having such an important role in it for such a junior person that I knew this was where I wanted to sort of stay as a career going forward. But given what you said then, Nick, we know that you don't stay at Essential. Um, what was the catalyst then for that transition then from uh, from Essential Living to, to Pocket Living? So a few years before, when I just started as chair of planning at Wandsworth, I had visited a pocket living development. I have to say, I'd been encouraged by the housing team to go, but I was very sceptical. I was unsure about what they were trying to do, and I was worried about space standards. So I, and I visited, I, as part of my initial role at my initial inception as a chair of planning, I wanted to see lots of development. I wanted to understand how development worked. I wanted to understand what was good architecture, what was good design. So I was open-minded to seeing things, but I was quite close-minded about this particular idea. But Chris Jones, who was the uh, head of housing at the time, said I should have a look. So I went round with him and one or two other officers, and I, you know, I was sort of cross-armed and sort of shaking my head. And this individual, this chap called Mark Blessing, uh, who was very dapper and and very um, very eloquent, much more eloquent than most property developers, to be honest, I had met at that stage, uh, showed us round. And I I remember saying at one stage, well, look, I don't think I understand quite what you're asking me to do here, Mark, but I, why would I want to support something which is not compliant? And he shot across me and said, well, if you don't do that, Councillor Cuff, you will be condemning a generation of young people to living in homelessness or in in HMOs or in poor quality accommodation, whereas Pocket delivers something which is unique and will give them security and but also a great, great property option. And and it was very cutting and very interesting as well because I think I think that's classic Mark really in the sense that he he is Marmite and he makes the points brusquely sometimes, but sometimes you need that. And it was a bit of a wake up call for me actually. I thought, well Maybe he's got a point. And I, I think it can go either way. And I think a lot of people in, in my role would would have their ego slightly damaged because a lot of 
local politicians who get to a certain role, you have to sort of be quite careful. They can be quite sensitive. I, I actually like that. I like the uh, I like the sort of force of argument, and and it and it and it and it pierced through my sort of slight skepticism. skepticism. So I went back to one sort of, and I said, actually, this is something which is interesting, and it didn't go anywhere, unfortunately, because I didn't have that. I didn't have the property role. I had the planning role. And so we left it at that and I was a nice meeting and I was I was won over. But then a couple of years later, he sought me out. I think we had a coffee when I was at Essential. And uh, he said, look, I'm, I'm starting to get some traction with Pocket now. At the time, it was a micro business, really, a bit like Essential had been. And I'm interested in recruiting a land director. Would you would you be interested in being interviewed? And I said, well, yes, I would be actually, Mark, because I think it's it's interesting, and I think you're an interesting operator. And essential at the time, I felt I'd got to a point where I, I'd sort of missed the boat slightly. Essential, it was someone else's thing. This could be something where I could really shape and grow. It was a bit behind the curve, really. Essential was a bit more ahead, I suppose, in the startup journey. And it was all the startup stuff that I kind of learned at Essential and at Cicero. So I kind of had a feel for how these sort of you know SMEs go. Uh, so so that's how I got into Pocket. I had the interview. I had an interview with Mark. Mark was very keen, I think, uh, once he once once we had a few conversations, and and I it was a real wrench to leave essential because I really enjoyed the, the atmosphere. And it was really taking off. Lots of interesting people, and I knew I could learn a lot there. But I just felt I needed to take myself out of the comfort zone, and there was something so compelling about what Pocket was trying to achieve, which was much more that kind of cross section between the public and private than what essential was. That I just had to give it a go. You mentioned about compelling. How risky was it? Given you, given you, you, know, you knew sort of the the challenges that they faced better than most people. How how risky was you know, was when you made this transition? It's going to fall flat on its face. I don't think I did know actually how challenging it was going to be at the time. I thought that I'd taken a few punts on my career before, and that I should try another punt this time. I had a call from a really good friend of mine who I work with very closely now, who's a very successful London agent. And he said, Nick, what are you doing? You're at Essential. It's going places. Your career's going places. Don't go to Pocket. The market is sceptical about Pocket. Blessing is a, is a tough operator. If it doesn't work out, it's not going to be good for you. And And I said, I mean, that might all be true, but... I think sometimes you just got to go with your your gut instinct, and so I went in there, and I I think probably Mark had sort of sold it really well. It it was it was a lot more challenging than I than I anticipated, and there were three or four things that were really challenging. The first was we we're in a very boom market, so we'd come out of that. You know, talking about cycles, you'd come out of that cycle at the bottom of the market when you know I joined left CBRE, joined Wandsworth. We were now in this raging bull market where, where land prices were going through the roof. Um, Pocket had no pipeline and it had just been funded by the GOA, uh, done this amazing deal with the GOA to, to support it. And so we had this capital to deploy, but no sites to buy. And, and there was also no real proof of concept because whilst Pocket had built a couple of things, to do real proof of concept in property development, you need to have done eight, 10 developments. It's not something that happens when you've done one scheme in, in Camden or Hackney. And so actually the, the marathon had only really just begun. So we had a multitude of different challenges and we also had to build a team. It was, again, it was a few people and we had to pull in people to help us grow, grow the entity. So there was so many things that had to sort of click, but, but there's just something about pocket and that attracted me to it. And if you, if you believe in something, and you're passionate about something, it can make up for a multitude of other challenges and it can propel you to to do really tenacious things, which is what I think in the last few years we've managed to do at the business. You mentioned that about, about a team and I wanted to ask you something. When you, when you started to build that team at Pocket, what was the most important to you? Was it the synergy with sort of the... Um, the agenda for Pocket, or was it the sort of technical prowess? At the time, I brought in people that I I could trust, who were people I'd worked with before. I brought in two people who had been on my course at real estate, my real estate course. 
one of them worked out really well. Uh, he's now gone to Jones Lang. Really great, tenacious fellow. I didn't bring on. I didn't bring in people who who necessarily subscribe to the values that I subscribe to and the values that Pocket subscribed to. We just couldn't pick and choose. So I brought in people that I could trust who were who were going to demonstrate some loyalty and were able to take on the pressures and challenges that we were going to have to take on to grow the business. So it was actually quite unconventional, I think, Nick. You just have to because because it didn't have a brand, it didn't have a presence, and it didn't have a track record. You have to use your personal relationships i think initially and that's what mark did with me and that's what i did with others so i brought in i brought in a few people in that vein and then they brought in their people too and we got we got going that way and and there were a few full starts as a result of that but looking back now it was probably the only way it was going to work and i had a network in real estate it wasn't a big network but i had one and i used it and it was very effective in those early days i'm going to sort of skip forward now a few years for, the, if, um, for anyone who's really interested about sort of the the creation sort of pocket in those sort of early early journeys, we've recorded a podcast with with Mark Vlessing uh, as well earlier in this series. But for you, sticking with you, Nick, I wanted to, to jump then to March 2020 because uh, uh, I've got down this this date as the date that you you joined the very very top table with with Pocket with a new title of Chief Commercial Officer. That's ideal timing, isn't it, for a uh, for a problem solver? Not knowing quite what was coming down the um, uh, down, down the pipe for everyone. Yeah, it was, and 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 the challenges rolled up. They didn't they didn't all happen at once. They all rolled up over the the course of the year. I mean, it's it's incredible how many challenges we faced actually as a business. I mean, we had there've been a couple of points where it's been really really challenging for Pocket. Uh, the first was joining. That was that was challenging. The second was was around 2015, just before we got the related funding. And the third the third has almost certainly been. COVID and the pandemic and how as a business we've transitioned and at the time that was happening there's also been obviously much more challenging planning environment to deal with too so we had a challenging construction environment challenging planning department environment and we had to we had to work through a strategy to get through all of those things in a way which kept us going as pocket but also found a way to diversify too and I think I think when you're in those situations you you really you see how what people are capable of and how people can really jump a leap in their careers and 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 in their skills. I mean, I've some of the incredible work and and achievements that the team have done in the last twelve months with huge odds and and so many things that were came to almost crunch and bite us in twenty twenty, but turning those into into really powerful achievements. And you know, it's been. For everyone, I'm sure, in real estate and and the world, really tough. It was it was certainly tough at pocket, but but it, it's incredible. I mean, from a business, from having been in the business where there was four or five people to to a business now of I don't know forty fifty, the sense of togetherness at pocket and the cultural bond of of being united in wanting to do something which is going to make the world a little bit better, hopefully, just gave us that sort of bonding which allowed us to get through the the first six 12 months of the lockdowns and and all the business challenges that that created so what did you personally need to develop going from land director to chief commercial officer what was what did you need to develop yourself i think one of the things i probably struggled with and mark maybe would say this too was i'm a person who focuses very specifically on one or two things. In fact, my wife would say that too. I'm not a good multitasker. And I I needed to get more lateral in many respects and needed to be able to prioritise a range of things at once. So that was that was part of it, being able to show that. The other thing they, they did, which I think was really helpful, was they put me on a, a course in um, Syed Business School, a sort of strategy and innovation course. And it was just sometimes it's really good to just stop and reflect on where you are and and do something which is a little bit different and that i did that in 2019 just before i got promoted to cco and it was just a nice means of just taking a step back and thinking what how do we chart pockets next steps my my role at pocket is to sort of chart growth and and there's lots of questions around pocket which we always ask ourselves you know it's a great brand it's a great product but how do we continue to grow those those things when they are 
so distinctly linked to a certain one bedroom home and there are ways of doing it and we've worked through those ways and we've we've spread our wings now we're into btr we've got much more rangy sites much larger sites uh, and pocket is much more about is about taking pockets of land today and 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 using smart design and it is about the actual pocket home itself although that is still and will be a very very important and valuable part of 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 our journey and our and our message and 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 that that period in 2019 uh, just before we went into lockdown in 2020 and 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 becoming the cco allowed me to really reflect on that and and i created a, a strategy with bark and related which we've now implemented which has seen us now expand into a range of things outside the GOA program, which will in the next few years see us being a very different organization to the one we are today. And I, I can't wait to see it come to fruition. Well, we're going to have to just start to draw this to a close, Nick, but I, um, I have, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. If I can just sort of um, crowbar in then one, one last question. Given the, the way in which your career has, has developed, Given sort of the, the you mentioned about the very start about about the background, I wanted to just ask you a quick question about success, and has your opinion of success changed over time? Yes, I think so. I think when I started in my career, I think success for me was about making a mark in the world, and today it's much more about feeling contentment and feeling happy in the challenges around me and the people around me. And I think that's a huge gear shift. I think that's a partly partly age, partly awareness. I think you can drive yourself too hard sometimes. I And I certainly have done. And I think I've benefited a lot from that. But I think the markers of success aren't just markers of where you are and your status and all of those things. It's also how you feel, how content you are. and And I think that for me now is is much more important than it was probably 10 years ago uh, well nick on uh, on that then I'll, I'll draw it all to a close mate thank you very much for uh, for joining us and, and recording this session i've really really enjoyed it thank you the urban land institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world with more than forty-five thousand global members The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.